Good morning. It's great to be back with you all. I've known Dave and this family uh, of believers for a number of years. Some of you I know well, some of you I don't know as well as I'd like to, but it is always an honor to be here to preach. Uh, we are definitely praying for your church during this transition time and know that the Lord has, uh, has some exciting times ahead for you. So uh, we'll keep praying with you in that. <clears throat> but I, I'm honored that I get the opportunity to be here in the midst of that. So I, I'm thankful for that. We are going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 23. And we are going to read through verse 24. But first I want to ask you a question. What is the effect of good leadership? What is the effect? Now, there's a lot of books out there on what makes a good leader. There, there are innumerable books on how to be a good leader, what it takes to be a good leader, what things you need to think about. But how many books do you see on the effect of good leadership? I, I haven't seen many. Now, Many of those books will talk about the effects, but they don't really go into as much detail as they do focus on the, the attributes of a good leader, the things that a good leader will do, the things that a good leader has to do in order to lead a group of people. So it was interesting. I was reading this article this week and preparing for this sermon, and a blog writer actually went and interviewed 140 CEOs from, country, from companies around the world. And the question was, what is the effect of good leadership? What does good leadership produce? And almost to a T, they all said, you make money and grow the company. Now, that's obviously in a business environment, but that's, that's essentially what they were looking at, is making money and growing the company. Now, there were a few who had other ideas, but the, the vast majority of them had that very same theme. Well, David has a different perspective on the effects of leadership. And this passage is his uh, really identifying the effects of godly leadership. Not just good leadership, but godly leadership. So as we read through this, you're going to kind of go, Steve, where are you going with this? Because this really doesn't sound like leadership. This just sounds like some great war stories. And these are fantastic war stories. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture because growing up, I just loved to read about David's mighty men. Well, as we look at this, you're going to see something come together in this passage that is really cool. And it makes me love this passage all the more. Now, what we are looking at is David's last words. Now, some of the Scriptures will say last words. It's really his last song or psalm. It's, it's the last one that he writes. And as you're going to see, this song is really an encapsulation of all that he's written, all of the psalms. It really kind of comes on the heels of, of 2 Samuel 22, which is repeated in Psalm 18. And it, it really details the effect of everything that he's written before. So if you want to go to the Psalms and write a book on leadership, you can easily do that. Because David really writes a lot of the, those same types of details that we would get in books about what is, what is it that requires, that's required for good leadership. 
for godly leadership. Well, this chapter takes all of that and says, okay, here's the effect of what godly leadership produces. So let's read and see where we go here. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 23, I'm starting in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, The man who was raised on high declares, The anointed of God of, of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning. When the sun rises, a morning without clouds. When the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? But the worthless, <clears throat> every one of them, will be thrust away like thorns, because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches, touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had, Josheb Bathshebeth, Atacamonite, sorry for the pronunciation on some of these names, chief of the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because of 800 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle, and the men of Israel had withdrawn. <clears throat> he arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Now after him was Shema, the son of Agi, a Herite, and the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the thirty chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam, while the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he swung his spear against three hundred and killed them, and had a name as well as the three. He was most honored of the thirty, therefore he became the commander. However, he did not attain to the three. Then Benahai, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done mighty deeds, killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. Now the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. 
But he went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did, and had a name as well as the three mighty men. He was honored among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David appointed him over his guard. <clears throat> Ashel, the brother of Joab, was among the thirty. And then the rest of this passage goes into the other thirty men. Uh, actually, it says at the end that there's thirty-seven, uh, which I'll explain in a little bit. But we're not going to go through and read all of those names uh, because they don't really pertain. It just gives you a listing. This is kind of the Hall of Fame of David's mighty men. And the, there's some of the names you might recognize, like the very last one in verse 39 says, Uriah the Hittite. Oh, wait. He's dead. David had him killed, remember, after Bathsheba. So some of these men have died, either in battle or, or were murdered. Uh, and so there's 37 because they replaced, placed them on the team. But let's go back and begin at the beginning of this passage. Before I really get in, let's pray real quick, and we'll get started. Father, we love you, and we're grateful for your word that teaches us so much. We're thankful for David and the life that he led, the way that you've detailed so much of his life for us to learn from. We're thankful for the Psalms that he's written. We're thankful for uh, his life as a man after God's own heart. We're thankful that we get to learn so much from this man, uh, who Christ is in his lineage and Lord, we're thankful for the covenant with David, as he speaks of in this passage. Father, I pray that as we go walk through this passage today, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us in the ways of godly leadership, that you would help us to understand what godly leadership is and how its effects can be seen, the fruit of our leadership. Father, we love you and ask these things in your holy name. Amen. So, we start in verse... One. Now, these are the last words of David. As I said, some, some passages, some versions may say the last song of David. I think that's probably more accurate. He obviously speaks again in chapter 24 and then even into 1 Kings. So there's other words that do come after this. But I think that this is his last song, his last psalm. And it introduces us to David. And these are the priorities. And I want you to notice what's here and what's not here. Okay. Because Scripture has a reason. God has a reason for what He writes in Scripture. And there are certain things that God wants us to pull from the life of David. First, David, the son of Jesse. Well, who is Jesse? He's not a king. He's a fairly wealthy man in Israel, but he's not a king. He's a normal man, has a, has a farm, a ranch, and David was one of his shepherds. <clears throat> It's important because it shows us the humble beginnings of David, that this passage that we're about to read doesn't, isn't based on your money. It's not based on your wealth. It's not based on your prestige. It's not based on your power. The principles that God is about to give us are universal, and it's important that we understand that. Then it says, the man who was raised on high. Well, David went from poor man, poor shepherd boy, one of the lowest positions in their culture, to be king. In other words, what we're about to read spans all of those cultural barriers, all of those classes that are in between the lowest and the highest. These principles are vital. The anointed of the God of Jacob speaks, speaks specifically 
about God's hand being on David, that he was the chosen king, the anointed one. And I love this last one, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Okay, notice what it doesn't speak about. It doesn't call him king. It does say that he was raised on high, but it doesn't call him the king. Anywhere in here, it ends with this very personal, very intimate uh, language, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And I love that the priority here is not on David's position, but it's really on what God did through David and how David used that to speak to Israel. Remember, the Psalms were really the language that David used to speak to Israel and to us. Those Psalms were from David's heart. They were his passion. They were, they were his lessons, if you will. So the fact that, that Scripture really prefer, refers us to David as someone who speaks the Word of God in song is significant. And then we get into this, this actual psalm. So we begin to see that the priority is on the song, so we need to pay attention to it. And then we see that the psalm comes next, and we see where David's priority is. <clears throat> First thing out of his mouth in this psalm is, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. Was, were these David's words? No, they were God's words. The Spirit of the Lord and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. Right here, we have a great confirmation on the Trinity. We have the Spirit, we have God the Father, and we have the rock of Israel who is Christ. Now, all three together as the Godhead speak to David. And what does he do with it? In the middle of this, he explains to us what he does with it. He says, and the word, his word, was on my tongue. <clears throat> Again, we have to look at the language here very carefully. Tongue is in your mouth, right? That's where you speak. So the Word of God wasn't just on his heart. It wasn't just in his head. It was something that he spoke. So we get the first couple of principles of really good leadership here. One, that we're submitted to the Word of God, first and foremost, that we are in line with God's Word that we allow God's Word to guide and direct us, that God's Word is what pushes us forward. And second, once we have that, that we actually speak it, that we speak the Word of God to others. And this is so vital because we can know the Word of God, we can actually live the Word of God, but until we speak it, we do not become real leaders. We can show people the Word of God by our actions. But David's priority here is beyond that. It is saying we as leaders must speak the Word of God. And that's part of being an effective godly leadership. And there's, there's, it's really cool what happens when we speak the Word of God and we live the Word of God. The people under us know that it's not us that's leading, that it's God leading. That their leader is subjected to the Word of God. That their leader is, is guided by the Word of God, by God Himself through His Word. 
This gives the, the people under the leader confidence that God is the one leading them, not the leader himself. The leader is just the conduit. Absolutely vital for effective leadership. Now David goes from here right into the leadership. And again, we need to look at what he doesn't say as well as what he does say. He says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. Now there's the word reign or rule here connotates a government position, a kingship, if you will. But he doesn't say king. He doesn't say governor. He doesn't say president. It's anybody who rules over somebody else. So anybody in any position of leadership would have this apply to them. Now, David happened to be king, so he's speaking from that platform, but he's not saying that this is just for kings. He's saying that anybody who rules over somebody else should apply these things. And this is the fruit of what will happen. And he says very clearly, he says, he who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, meaning that everything he does is before the face of God. Everything that he thinks about, everything, every decision that he makes, he takes before God. Now, did David always do that? The answer is no. Obviously, we know that he didn't take everything to God. In fact, just prior to this, there was a season to which he didn't really even speak about God very much in 2 Samuel. It was after the sin with Bathsheba and after he killed Uriah. There comes a time where David is kind of ruling on his heels and things kind of go bad for him, really bad for him. So Absalom rebels, leads an entire rebellion against him. So it doesn't mean that everything that happens here is going to be perfect. You can lead righteously and still have enemies. You will have enemies. You can lead righteously and things will still go wrong because we're human, we're fallible. So don't take this as the means to say, oh, you're not leading righteously because of this. We can't always do that. There may be times when that's, a, when that's true, but you have to look beyond that. You really have to look at what do these words mean. He who rules over men righteously. There's two, two points to this. One, he's directing his leadership. He's, he's saying that you, when you have any type of authority and you do it righteously, there's going to be an effect Righteously means that you're in right relationship with God, meaning your actions are in obedience to God, that you are ruling in submission to God's word. Okay? <clears throat> he who rules over men righteously, he who rules in the fear of God. He's essentially saying the same thing over again, but in this case, he's saying not just in your actions, but in your thoughts that you are doing this in the fear of God, that you are fully submitted to God in mind, body, soul, everything. Everything is fully submitted to God. Now, this is where this gets really pretty, okay? This is not the kind of language that you would typically hear from a leader of today. 
But I want you to pay attention to the words of David as we walk through this, because this is one of the most beautiful verses in terms of the effect of leadership. He's saying, when you rule over men righteously, when you rule in the fear of God, here's what happens. It's, is, it's as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. How many leadership books have you read or seen or heard of that use that kind of language? I have never read any. There's not one. Again, I'm going to read it again. He who rules in the fear of God is as the light of the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. To me, those are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Because he is describing the effect of godly leadership on the people to which he's leading. So if you're leading people in righteousness, if you're leading people in the fear of God, it has this effect on them. It's as the light of morning when the sun rises. Now, how many of you love to get up in the morning and watch the sunrise? Drink some coffee, sit and just enjoy that time of the morning. Maybe read the Word. There's, it's just an absolutely refreshing time of the morning. It is a time when you are renewed. Oftentimes when I get up in the morning and I pray, I say, Lord, thank you for the new day. Thank you for allowing me to enjoy the new day. Now, I don't always get up early enough to see the sunrise, but I do love to see the sunrise. And it's a, but the morning in general is just a refreshing time of day. Now think about this in terms of leadership. What does that mean to people? One, it's a refreshing time. They're refreshed. They've been given rest. So the leadership is actually refreshing to those that are being led. It's not burdensome. It's not overbearing. It's refreshing to them. It also is a time of giving light through the darkness. Remember, David is speaking the word of God, and he's giving direction. He's giving light in the darkness. So there's, there's probably a ton of different ways that we could go just with the morning in terms of how this affects those who you're leading. But <clears throat> needless to say, it is a wonderful feeling. When you wake up refreshed, ready to go, you're eager, you're excited, things are, and you have the light of the day to accomplish things. That's what good, godly leadership provides for those whom you're leading. Now, it keeps on going. A morning without clouds. What does that mean? There's nothing blocking the light, there's clarity. The Word of God gives that clarity. The leader enables the people that he's leading to move forward with clarity. There's nothing blocking their vision. Okay? <clears throat> when the tender grass springs out of the earth, this one's beautiful. Now, if you've ever been in science class where they've done the, the fast motion uh, video of, of plants sprouting, 
It's a wonderful time where they're coming to life out of the ground and they're growing. They're moving toward the light. They're excited. I mean, it's, it's like, whew, refreshing, exciting. New light, there's growth. So the leader who leads in godliness does enable growth through the word of God. Through sunshine after rain, sunshine, again, the warmth, the light, that feeling of, of refreshment from the rain after a hot day, you get the rain out. In Colorado, we really got this because when it would rain, it could be 100 degrees outside, but when it would rain, it would cool it down to 70. And it was one of the most marvelous things I've ever experienced. Now, down here, it gets hot, steamy, and muggy. <laughs> but in Colorado, we really felt what the rain would do. It would cool things off, and you would just feel a peace after the rain. So you can see that the, the, the message that David is giving here is that there's an effect on the people that you lead. When you lead righteously, when you lead in the fear of God, as a mom, as a dad, as a teacher, as a business person, whatever your role is, when you lead, there's an effect of your leadership on those around you. They shouldn't feel overburdened. They shouldn't feel depressed. When their morale is down, you know that you're probably not getting things right. When they're not excited about their jobs, when they don't have what they need to accomplish what, they, what you've assigned them to do, there's, there's going to be an effect on them. And this is where David begins to show us in that verse the beautiful effect of godly leadership. Now, he goes in and he, he we're not going to spend as much time here on verses 5 through 7. Um, he talks about his family and then he goes into what happens when you're not a godly leader. And we see an example of that later in chapter 24 when he does the census and God punishes Israel. But needless to say, there's, there's a difference between a godly leader and an ungodly leader. So now... We shift gears into this passage of Mighty Men. Now, um, the kids in here probably enjoyed that passage. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a kid at heart when it comes to these passages. I love that passage, this passage. The, the battle stories are phenomenal. But let's not just get stuck on the battle stories here. Let's look at the context. We just had David's psalm, last psalm where he's talking about, take all of the other psalms that I've written, take everything that I've spoken to you, and understand that there's an effect on you, the people that I'm leading. There's, there's this powerful message that comes from the Word of God. And when we teach the Word of God effectively, it has this effect on people. Now, David was the king, and, and much of his leadership was lived out in warfare. So we have images of warfare to show this effect. But the principles are very clear, okay? So we're going to walk through these one story at a time. Some of them we'll spend a little bit of time on, some we'll spend a little bit more time on. <clears throat> In verse 8, it says, these are the names of the mighty men. Very odd transition. I mean, we just have this beautiful psalm about godly leadership. And then it says, that it just kind of throws us into... These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. 
But that's a transition that shows us that what we just read had an impact on the names that you're about to read. Everything that David did, everything that he said, the way that he led in battle, remember that David was perhaps the greatest warrior of his era. You remember when when he was uh, a general under King Saul, the people would say, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands. Okay, so remember that number as we're walking through. The, the numbers in here are incredible. But remember that David was perhaps even greater of a warrior than what we're about to read about here. So we see that, this, that, the, that David tells us when you lead in a godly way, there is an effect. Let's see what that effect is. Josheb Bathshebeth. A Tecumonite, chief of the captains, he was called Adino the Esnite. Why? Because of 800 slain by him at one time. Okay, I don't know about you, but that's phenomenal. I don't, I've wrestled with my brothers, and wrestling with one man wears me out. <laughs> this man killed 800 people in one battle. Folks, that is a phenomenal warrior. That is a warrior of warriors. That is a man who has done exemplary things in battle. But it's interesting. In this one verse, all we know about him is that he killed 800 men at one time. What does that tell us about David's leadership? What does that tell us about godly leadership? What does that tell us about when you lead in righteousness? Very simple. And God doesn't spend a lot of time on this, I think, for one very important reason. Because he doesn't want to focus on the numbers. Because godly leadership can produce numbers. Okay? Godly leadership can produce financial numbers. It can produce numbers of people. It can produce all different types of numbers. It can produce economic numbers if you're the president. It can produce a lot of numbers. But look at the amount of time that God gives to numbers. Very small. Compared to the other stories in here, this is the shortest of the stories. David didn't want us to to ignore numbers. Sometimes numbers can be very important, but don't focus your attention on numbers. I have a a mentor who encouraged me one time. He said, Steve, minister as unto the Lord with all your heart and don't measure the numbers. Why? Because he didn't want me to get proud. He didn't want me to focus on the numbers and let that glorify me. Let God number them. Now, numbers can be very helpful. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes you need numbers to plan. I mean, how many of you have thrown a party and wanted to know how much food you needed? If you didn't have an idea of how many people were coming, it gets hard to plan. So there's nothing wrong with numbers. And I think Scripture gives us numbers here to say that, that numbers can be impressive, numbers can be fantastic, but give it that much space. Use them for what they're valid for. Don't use them to puff up. 
Okay, very interesting. Now, it's not all we hear about this man, which is fortunate, but this story is focused on numbers. Now, I want you to think about the numbers as we move forward. <clears throat> so one of the, the top three was uh, Adino. The other one, a second one was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle and the men of Israel had withdrawn. Okay, so here's the picture. David, his three mighty men, against the Philistines. That's it. The rest of Israel had left. Okay, that's the picture. And we have this picture of this one man, and this was his day. Listen to what this man does. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Okay, so here's the picture. This man takes a stand against the Philistines, and he fights until he has no energy left, until he's so tired, his hand is cramped around the sword. He probably can't even let go of the sword because his hand is so cramped up. And he is exhausted. He probably doesn't have any electrolytes left in his body. He's given everything to this battle. Now, what does that tell you? I mean, it says very clearly in the previous verse that one of the three mighty men with David, and they defied the Philistines. So he's with David, and he does this with David. So there's an effect of leadership that David has on this man. David is the leader. This man is following David. And how much effort does he give? He gives it all. He gives every ounce of energy that he has. His loyalty, his exuberance, his his excitement in working for David is apparent. It's obvious. He loves David. He fights with David until he has nothing left to give. So much that he can't even let go of his own sword. Phenomenal effect of David's leadership. In other words, David's leadership produced a loyalty that was willing to give everything. Okay? This man loved David. We'll see that again here in a little bit. Now, after him, so we have Adina, we have Eleazar, and now we have Shema, verse 11, the son of Agiah, Herorite. And the Philistines, now get the picture here, and the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. Okay, same picture. We have a plot of lentils, which are like beans, a sustenance. This man is standing in the middle of this field, and all of Israel leaves. They had a habit of doing this, okay? You saw it with Goliath. Israel wouldn't fight him. One man, and they wouldn't fight him. They, they hid from him. The previous verses showed us that they'd fled when Eleazar was fighting. And now with Shema, they leave again, Okay? 
Sometimes people will lead no matter how good of a leader you are. Sometimes they will flee because they're fearful. Sometimes they're selfish. Sometimes they're after some things that they can't get while they're right there. That's why I think that we shouldn't look at leadership solely in terms of numbers. Because at this point in time, David's leadership and the effect of his leadership is on one man. It's not even on entire Israel. If you looked at at this battle strategy, you would say David was a failure. But his effect on this one man was so powerful that this man took up his spot in the field of lentils. Now, it's interesting that Scripture gives us that detail. He took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, why lentils? Why does Scripture give us lentils? Why does God say that this battle happened in a, in a plot of lentils? Well, it's sustenance, Israel's sustenance. In other words, Shammah was guarding the food of the people of Israel. He was acting as a shepherd unto Israel. His heart was bent on protecting his people. It was on fighting for David. David's effect on him produced a shepherd. Now remember, David was a shepherd. David thinks as a shepherd. David thinks in terms of how he provides for those that he leads. And this man caught that vision. He knew that he needed to protect Israel. He needed to protect Israel's food. And he does it so effectively here. Now, there's a passage here. There's a a phrase, I should say. Here and with Eliezer. And it's one that we can't ignore. <clears throat> it says in verse 10, about halfway through, it says, The Lord brought about a great victory that day. And here at the end of verse 12, And the Lord brought about a great victory. So, what is Scripture, what is God telling us through these words about our leadership? He's telling us just to fight the battle. Be engaged, be involved, speak the word of God into the lives of those that you have influence on. Don't worry about the end result. Worry about the effect that you have on people's lives and how you lead them. But the victory is what God brings about. So just be engaged, be involved. So now we have the three men who have been introduced to us. These are the three leaders of David's military. You notice that the scriptures here don't mention one man in particular. They don't mention Joab. Joab was the leader of the army. He was David's right-hand man. He was the man who led all of the military and all of their military excursions. But he only gets one mention here in a few verses. He doesn't even rate in this area. And Joab was a mighty warrior. Why do these scriptures not tell us about Joab? I mean, it's a major oversight. 
I mean, Joab probably wasn't real happy that he didn't get mentioned in here if he knew about this passage. Joab was an incredible warrior, but Joab never loved David. Joab loved Israel, but he never loved David. Now, David was his uncle. There was probably a little bit of affection for him, but his loyalty was to Israel. It was never to David. He went against David on multiple occasions. He killed Abner. He killed uh, other men, and he went against David and against Solomon, David's choice to be the next king. And Joab tried to put another son on on the throne. So Joab was not loyal to David. He was loyal to Israel and did his job. He did it well. David tried to do away with him two chapters earlier as the leader. And Joab killed the man that he replaced him with. Vicious man. Did not have a heart for the Lord. Every now and then he would mention the Lord, but he really didn't follow the Lord. He he was really a man who was after his own heart. He was really a man who wanted his own way. He knew his place and he did it well. And he was valuable to David, but he was not loyal to David. So we have listed here the three men who were loyal to David. And we can now get a picture of just how loyal those three men were to David. It says in verse 13, Then three of the thirty chief men, that's these three men, went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam. The cave of Adullam is where David fled from King Saul. So this story took place many, many, many years before this was written. David was alone in the, in the cave, and he prayed and said, Lord, bring me people. I want to be a shepherd. I'm by myself. I can't be a shepherd of myself. I want to be a shepherd of men. And these three men were some of the, of the hundreds that went to David as he was in the, in the cave. During this time, the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David, and they, they had possession of, of Bethlehem at this time. David was then in the stronghold, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Now, why would David want water from the well that's by the gate in Bethlehem? I mean, what a strange request. I don't know that he wanted the water as much as he longed for Bethlehem to be free from the Philistines. We don't, we don't know that for sure, but he's longing for his home. He's longing to see Bethlehem freed. His family may be under Philistine rule at this time. So he may be just longing to get rid of the Philistines. But these three men took him literally. <clears throat> so the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the, by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. So three men go through the middle of the Philistines, battling their way to the well, have enough time to draw water from the well, close it up so they don't spill it, and they take it back to David, probably fighting their whole way back. They get back to David, and he does something very interesting. But before we read that, 
Imagine the loyalty that took from these three men, the love that they had for David. That verse in verse 4 where it talks about the effect of godly leadership, this is the picture of the effect of godly leadership. These men took it upon themselves to care for their leader. They loved him dearly. Joab probably would not have done that. These three men did. What a great picture of their love for him. Now, David does something with this water. He says, nevertheless, in verse 16, nevertheless, he would not drink it and poured it out to the Lord. Poured it on the ground. These men just went and fought for this water and he pours it on the ground. And he said, be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Why on earth would David pour out water that these men just went and got for him? So it's an attribute of leadership that, that we really need to look at with David. He was humble. He didn't feel like he was deserving of this water because these men had put their lives in jeopardy to bring him some water. And he said, I am not worthy of this water. Only God is worthy of this water. And he pours the water on the ground as a drink offering to the Lord. And you notice something. The three men didn't complain. The three men were not upset. We don't see that they are upset in any way here. All we see is that David thinks so highly of what they did that he gives the product of their efforts to God and says, he's the only one who deserves this. These three men loved David. The effect of his leadership on their lives was phenomenal. Now, we move on from these three men. And the first one is Abishai, the brother of Joab. He was there when Joab murdered Abner, and he was there when, they, when, they, when he murdered the man who took over as the leader of the army. Abishai was in lockstep with Joab, which mean, means that he was not loyal to David. He was loyal to Israel. He was loyal, loyal to Joab. But he was not loyal to David. And let's, let's read about Abishai. He was the son of Zeruai, who was... David's sister. He was chief of the 30. And he swung his spear against 300 and killed them and had a name as well as the three. Okay, so here's the picture. Abishai is a phenomenal warrior, just like everybody else that we've read about, everybody else that we've talked about. Killed 300 men at one time. And this is where we see that God doesn't want us just to focus on numbers. We would think, okay, this guy deserves a spot among the three. Why would David not give him a spot among the three? I think it's because he didn't trust him. Yes, he was, he was a great warrior. Yes, he, he fought valiantly for Israel. But David never felt like he had Abishai's loyalty. 
again, we may lead righteously. We may lead in the fear of God, but we may not have the heart of everybody that we lead. And we have to be able to discern whose heart we have. And David understands that with Abishai. And it says, he was most honored of the 30. Therefore, he became the commander. However, he did not attain to the three. So David kept him at a little bit of a distance. He understood how great of a warrior he was, how great of a commander he was. He and Joab were both great leaders in their respective fields. But neither one of them could be considered godly men. David didn't fully trust them. He trusted them militarily because their, their loyalty, their affection was for Israel, and he knew that. So he could trust them as far as that is concerned, but he couldn't trust, him, trust them with his own life. So he let him command the 30, but that's all. So the numbers didn't bring trust. Just because he killed 300 men in one battle and was a phenomenal warrior, the numbers didn't bring trust. There was more to it than that. David required more, and we're going to see that with this next leader. The Benaiah, the son of Johadiah, the son of a, a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done mighty deeds, killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. Now, we don't really know if these were princes, if these were great warriors, we really don't know much about who these men were. Uh, we just know that what he did was a phenomenal feat, just by the context. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. Interesting detail there. It was a snowy day, and he went into a pit and killed a lion. Phenomenal feat. I mean, I don't want to do that. I don't know about you, but I have no desire to get into a pit with a lion. But he did, and he killed it. Then he killed an Egyptian, an impressive man, an interesting description again. Now the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian. Okay, so here's the picture. Benaiah goes down to fight an Egyptian with a club. I don't know about you, but if a man has a spear and I have just a club, I'm a little bit, I'm feeling a little bit uh, fearful, but he wasn't. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Okay, You know the action movies that we watch on TV and in the movie theaters? They have nothing on what these guys did. These guys were incredible warriors, incredible fighters. And there's something that separates them from each other. Joab was not a man after God's own heart. He loved Israel. He loved his nation. He was a patriot, if you will. But he didn't love God. Abishai was his brother, and he was the same way. He loved Israel, but he didn't love God. The three men who were the leaders of the 30 loved God, they loved David, and they learned how to serve from David. They watched David. They did what David wanted them to do. They, they acted the way that leadership should act. Okay? Benaiah does the same thing. <clears throat> says, These things Benaiah the son of Jehadiah did, and had a name as well as the 30 mighty men. Now listen to this. 
But he was every bit as good as the three men, but he wasn't honored among the 30. He was honored among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. Why not? David appointed him over his guard. In other words, David trusted this man with his life. He put him in charge of his bodyguards. Now, if you go back and you read about David's bodyguards, they were largely Philistines. That when he had lived in in Philistia, he had gotten to know some of the Philistines, and they loved David. Their effect on him, his effect on them, was such that they loved him more than their own people, and they followed David. And David sees that these men are loyal, and that they're not loyal to Philistia or to Israel. They're loyal to him. And he puts Benaiah over, the, over them as the head of the bodyguards. And all of these men love David. And later we see that, that David loves him so much that he tells Solomon, look, Joab is trying to undermine you to become the next king. Send Benaiah to kill Joab. He knew he could trust him. The effect of his leadership was such that it had an affection for this man. And this man had an affection for his leader. Verse 4 comes around again and again through these men. It says, the light of the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. You just see that effect coming out in these men. The ones that adore David, they, that his leadership has an effect on them. Why does it have an effect on it, on them? Why does David's leader, leadership affect them when it really doesn't affect Joab and Abishai? It's because of their love of God. David's leadership, remember, is that his word, God's word, is on his tongue, and he leads righteously, and he leads in the fear of God. And these men adore that. They trust that. They know that they can count on David. Even when he sins, he repents. They know that they can trust that, and they put their lives into it. The effect of godly leadership comes from the Word of God being on our tongue. Our ability to take the Word of God and apply it into other people's lives and to help them, to enable them to do their jobs, to do what God called them to do, to encourage them, to love them, to entrust them with duties that are fantastic duties, just powerful, powerful men in this case. God enables them to do their job because they love God, and David speaks God's word to them. So what can we learn from that? Obviously that we need to have God's word in our hearts and in our minds so that we know it, we trust it. We ourselves have to live that. But we also need to speak it. 
one to another, to anybody that is under our authority, to anybody that will listen. And we need to watch the victory be in God's hand and what he does with that. God will show us these effects when we speak his word into the lives of other people. He will show us these effects. He will give us the opportunity to see his hand work in the lives of other people when we have the courage to speak his word into their life. But we have to know God's word and we have to have the courage to speak it and to live it. We have to have the courage to do those things. We have to have trust in God and in his word that it is effective, that it will do as God says it will do in the lives of other people. It won't return void. It will have an effect. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the astounding feats that these men accomplished. We're astounded astounded by David and all that he accomplished. And, And to see that at the root of all of this is you speaking your word into David. That that is what brings about all of these accomplishments. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work in our lives. Give us the grace to be righteous. We know that no one is righteous, no, not one. Accept that by the grace of God. And we pray that you would give us that grace so that we might live righteously and that we might fear you. And Lord, that we might live our lives in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you. But Lord, also that we might be have the courage to speak your word to speak it well, to speak it truthfully, to speak it honestly, to speak it with no uh, selfish desire in mind, but only to see that your hand of victory works in the lives of other people, to lift them up, to encourage them, to bring them to the point of salvation, Lord, where your spirit uses your word to bring people to the saving knowledge of Christ. Father, help us to be witnesses. Help us to live courageously in your word. In your name we pray. Amen.